Welcome to World Harvest Outreach Wednesday Night Bible Study. Um, so yeah, so thanks for coming out. Um, I'm just going to open us up um, in, in prayer and then we'll get started here. Father, uh, we just thank you uh, for this day. And whether our day started out good or bad, you are always good to us and good things are all around us. Uh, we just have to look. And I know for one of me, for me, it's uh, realizing to be here with this church family and this body that just loves you so passionately and is hungry, just longs for your presence and uh, to see your face. And I just uh, thank you for everyone here. Um, I also pray if there was uh, any injuries or seriousness where people got hurt on the 70, if there was an accident, I just pray for those family and those peoples and everybody who's involved in that. And Lord, I just pray that you bless our time together that you, I just really pray, um, as I pray leading up to this, is that that it's really you who leads this time with us. And if we need to go some other direction than what I feel you laid on me, please take us there um, and uh, let me be sensitive to, to follow your lead in this and that we all follow your lead tonight. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we'll see how this new setting is. I think I like it better. I think. Say, we'll see. If anybody has suggestions, we're like open to it because we talked about having like little tables. Yeah, there are snacks over there. Listen, feel free to just get up and go there. I tell people even when I'm teaching kind of training classes at work uh, because people, sometimes you have training class with package handlers in the middle of the night. I said, if you need to stand up or do whatever you need to do, don't feel locked like we're in some academic classroom or something. So feel free. So. All right, um, so I was trying to figure out uh, for weeks now where to um, begin, uh, and I feel like um, I want to do um, a little bit review, believe it or not, of where we were uh, a year ago when we started this, um, and I kind of want to refocus of where we're going when we um, are looking at approaching the scriptures um, and what we're doing here. And I feel I need to go back. It's real important. And I remember the last session, um, I was watching it. I think my wife and I, we were driving from Florida, and we were watching it kind of live. And uh, there was some sharing at the end. And I remember Mark saying that the one thing to take from this is remembering the importance of the story. And that is the most important thing. And I want to make sure for thus who, those who are involved, or if there's anybody who wasn't involved with this last year, um, that you get an idea of um, my perspective of where we're coming from here. So, um, so I kind of talk about like approaching the Bible like a movie. Um, I, I think it is. I think um, it's one of the best ways. It's the most exciting movie there is out there. Um, some people try to make movies out of parts of the Bible, and sometimes they're really bad, and then sometimes they're really good. Um, so there's not like a whole movie that does the whole thing, but I think it's an exciting thing. And I think kind of this title on this first sheet that I want to point out here is the unfolding and ongoing story of the whole world. I think that's the best way to approach the biblical text because it's really the story of everyone. It doesn't matter whether they know God, they're an atheist, they're a Hindu, or there are other faiths, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's their story too. They might not know it right now, but it's their story too. Um, and we're the continuation um, of that story. So, 
Um, so you can go to the next slide. So, um, looking at the scriptures as a story here, um, I cha I've changed these titles a couple times. I don't think I gave you guys, I gave you guys all pronouns or anything. So, um, I just made some, they're, they're not really big changes. But if I was to break up the scriptures into, I would break it up into kind of what I call six main acts. Um, and the first one is God creates his kingdom is how I'm labeling it. Uh, we spent a lot of time in those two chapters, almost a whole year. Um, so that's where we are um, in it. And then we, get, we also did chapter three. But as we move on, then there's rebellion in the kingdom. And a big section that we're going to hit these next couple weeks um, is to get through. Um, oh, it's hard to tell. I'm going to take my best guess that it'll probably be three sessions uh, to get through to, through to chapter 11. Of Genesis, so um, I know I know you guys don't believe me, and you shouldn't. But I, I'm I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a little more confident about this one though, because like Genesis chapter five, I'm not going to spend a whole session on a genealogy. There is important stuff in there, but I don't need a whole session for it. So we'll we'll, we'll kind of move a little faster on some parts. And by the way, a year ago I asked like, hey, what's some things you want to know? Ben said he wanted to know who the sons of God were in Genesis chapter 6, so I am going to answer that, um, and that's probably next, or next session in two weeks, so we should get to that, that part, so that should be fun, um, so we might have some good discussion about that. Um, so anyway, but when we look, I do want to say this much about where we're heading in this story, um, is after what we traditionally call the fall of Adam and Eve, um, things just kind of get worse. <laughs> so things just start slipping more. So there's a, there's a lot of things where people are turning their, their face um, from God and kind of going their own way and doing their own thing. Um, the next part of the story, uh, the king's faithfulness, which kind of takes us to Genesis 12, which is starting with Abraham and goes clear to the end of the Old Testament, really, um, his faithfulness to what he created back in Genesis 1 and 2. His continual faithfulness through series of covenants and relationships to continue to have that relationship with his creation. And then the four of the coming of the king, I'm calling the coming of the king when uh, Jesus, the four gospels, and then the kingdom expands. Uh, after Jesus' resurrection, we got Acts and we got the apostles uh, taking the good news um, out to the rest of the nations. And then chapter 6, uh, kingdom come, which the book of the Revelation. So, so that's the overall act of where we're going of how I think um, it kind of breaks up of this overarching story. So, we go to the next slide. Um, the other thing I talked about um, is this, and I want to keep coming back to here, mainly because this is what I call to an extent, uh, in my experience, not that you take this slide out, but this is how I know for myself a lot of conversations in the sense of evangelism, of talking to people about the good news or talking about God. It's these type of questions because everybody has these questions. And some people don't have answers to them. Some people have never even thought about them. Um, and then there's times they do. And there's opportunity um, here because everybody um, has these and it's a whether they deal with them or they don't. And some people have uh, different. Some people don't believe God exists. You know, um, what happens when I die? A lot of people think about that. But this, this, the story that we're looking at, the scriptures as a whole, answers this. And this is a whole 
world view um, look at things. Um, it's not isolated to a certain group of people, but it has a whole, it answers all the big questions that really every human being has in some way. So, um, and a worldview is, like I said, that's kind of the definition. It's kind of the lens we are looking through to view God, the world, and how to live in it. Um, these are some quotes I had before that just a reminder of good things to kind of make this point about the story um, of how to approach the Bible um, as a whole. So the, this is from an Australian sociologist, John Carroll, who does not, he doesn't profess, uh, profess to be um, a Christian, but suggests the reason the church in the West is in decline is because it has forgotten its story. And he claims, and this is his quote, the Christian churches have com comprehensively failed in their one central task to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. Um, that's kind of what we're looking at. So I'm not sure, and, and I don't mean this as a, a criticism, uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan that I, my, it's my passion to do it, but I'm not sure if the best story is just talking about the Romans' way to salvation or there are different ways we have talked about it. I think it's much bigger than that. Um, I think salvation's um, just a part of a bigger thing that God has planned for all of us. So, um, so I think we have to, that's why I think this approach to it is so um, important. Uh, World-renowned biblical scholar, one of my... Uh, one of you asked, like, well, how do you do it? How do you, like, know what you do? A lot of the, I read a lot of N.T. Wright stuff, who I really enjoy. Um, it says in his New Testament, on his book, uh, New Testament, The People of God, the whole point of Christianity is that it offers a story which is the story of the whole world. It is public truth. We need to tell this story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of the world. Okay. All right, why is it important to read and study the Bible? Because, you know, I, I think this is a big thing. Um, I, there's always, you, you hear, I hear more debates or watch, you know, whether it's on YouTube or other people talking about um, how relevant it is to actually study the Bible. Because naturally the Holy Spirit teaches us a whole bunch of stuff. But that's remember that that truth of how we discovered it comes from scriptures of what has been passed down in our history and in our story of our brothers and sisters from the past um, as well. So um, I think it's important. Here's just a couple things, and this is where I really shortened what we went over before, because I think I had like seven slides on this. So, but I just want to hit some things here. Why I think it's important to actually study and read the Bible is competing stories, okay? <laughs> All you have to do is look at our world today Besides other religions that have different stories than the story of, of the Bible, um, you got the humanist story, we got political stories out there, our culture's telling all types of different stories um, out there of answering some of those worldview questions that we're talking about, um, and our media is telling stories out there too. And there's all these things, and the question is, well, you know, I, it's kind of like Pilate, well, what is truth? Um, it's kind of, Frustration, and I think that's the important, is that we have a story that's the whole world's story. Um, and it, everybody's included um, in it. And so that's why I think it is important, uh, because we're all a part of this story and a continuation of this story. Um, the second thing is, is to interpret all parts of the story uh, coherently. 
um, must be understood in the context of the one story. I think this is the biggest, this is kind of, my, I guess, my advice, because without getting into, because not everybody wants to do what I did, like I get into like reading commentaries, reading theological books, and I was a Bible major, and like I loved it, but some people don't want to get bogged down in all that and read about, you know, the context of the Corinthian church, and you read all this, you know, a whole book just on what was going on in Corinth, and, and then you finally read the letter of Paul to get it. So you might not want to do all that. But here's, here's my biggest advice is when you read it, and it's the importance of us going through this story, is always think, if you're having problems in terms of what's the overall story of the Bible? What's the scriptures about? That is how I know even I come to conclusions of making sure I'm not putting in it what I'm trying to see, but actually how does it fit into the overall story? That's important. So when I'm looking at a verse, I look at the paragraph around it, I look at the chapter, I look at the whole book, and then I think I look at the bigger book of Scripture. Is, is, it, is this in line with the whole story about who Jesus is and what he taught, what he said? Does it fit, or is this something totally different? So I think that's why it's um, very important to have a, the basis of an overall story that's being told. Uh, three, center our worship so it enacts and tells the story. Um, I just think it's important because when churches gather, I feel like when you think about the service, whatever church, not just, I'm not just talking about here any church, I think the thought process should be, how am I telling the story throughout the service? Is am I telling the story? Am I continuing to tell the story? Um, this story where Christ is the center of it and the author of it all, um, is it centered around here? Um, so that's why there's certain things I like um, about churches that I might, I might not, I might not, uh, I'm not going to regularly attend a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or Episcopalian church. But what I do like about service is that their service is centered around communion. Um, and so that's a part that I think that is good because it's, it's the center of the story. Um, and it's kind of like when <clears throat> even the Passover, which Jesus was the Passover lamb, but part of when um, Moses originally gave that to him, they said, do this. So when your children ask, why are you doing this? And they got to tell the story about what God did for them. And I think that's what communion does and things like that. So that's an example. Now, I'm not making a case we need to have communion here every week. I'm just saying there's things like that um, that I think we need to think about the story when we think about um, our worship and when we gather is, is what we do tell the story. And, some pe and the thing is, we have people, we have an open mic here. So there's always a story being told in some way. I think that's one of the unique things about us and who is that the story is being told. The continuation of the story of what God is doing in the lives of his people. So it's always present um, at who. It's one of the things I love about us. Uh, I think it's brave because you never know what people might say, and, and we do it. And I think that's what Jill and I always talked about. I came here, it was like, man, what? No church does this that we've ever gone to. You know, I remember we were part of churches that had some sharing time, but it was very controlled. So very controlled. So, but um, you don't know what's going to happen, and that's kind of uh, um, the God we serve. He's dangerous, and you never know where He may lead us. So, uh, four equips. Uh, to I, I changed this word. I put manifest in there since we were using it. So I, I changed it. I think I forget what word I had in there, but I changed it today. I'm really like, because it meant the same, it really meant the same thing. I forget what I had in there. Uh, but worship, um, but equips to manifest the story of the world. I mean, that's 
what this is all about. It can't just stay as some academic thing. It's that we are the continuation of this story that should be manifest in our lives, that comes forth, that people see. That was the, that was the whole thing, even when we were looking at Adam and Eve and the creation. God wanted things to manifest, to come forward, to come out. Um, and so that's the reason we need to do it, because that story comes out. Um, Five, I think it's important because we need to avoid fragmenting the Bible and keep in focus the narrative, the unity of Scripture. Because that's the big thing is, is, um, is what I'm talking about, is this keeping in line with the story and the unity of all Scripture, or this, this is me. There's things, I know my dad has said this, I'm sure Mark would say this, and other people that have, have preached. There are some things that I preached way back when, the first church I worked at, and they're like, I can't believe I preached that and said that so um, and I wish I had it back and so but I remember my heart was pure when I did it at the time so um, I'm sure God cleaned up my mess because he's really good housekeeper and cleaning up messes that we make so um, so but it's very important um, and overall just saying overall why we, why it's important to read and study the Bible this will help us um, from falling into the trap of the world's cultural story and form us and shape us into the biblical story, which was the intent of the original biblical writers. That's why they wrote to their churches. They wanted to make sure. Paul was always concerned it's about not being conformed to the world and the culture and the story out there, that the kingdom of our God is much different and his values and the way we operate is much different. Um, and so that's why that's important. And one of my favorite um, quotes I had up this last year, too, this is from a Hindu scholar who's not even a believer of world religions, and he said to a Christian missionary and scholar the following, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. In any way, we have plenty, in any way, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. I find your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. Pretty impressive stuff. Somebody who doesn't even believe in the Christian faith understands that. Um, that this is the book of everybody, that it is very unique to any other religious book. Um, go to the next one. I might come back to that. Um, so, any comments or questions so far? Anything kind of open before I move on to something sort of new? Anything? So, if you guys can pass these around, make sure everybody gets one. These next three slides, this is what's on those, but this is for you to keep in case, um, so you guys have it for future reference. Um, if you're not, never seen anything, what I'm going to go over here. So, I don't know if, you know, we're, we're kind of in Genesis here in the Old Testament. So, I realized I alluded to this maybe 
I maybe alluded to this for 20 seconds at some point, but it's really important to realize that the Christian Old Testament and the Jewish Bible, um, their Old Testament, it's, it's set up much differently. It's, it's set up different. Um, and you can see our, our, our Christian Bibles, um, our Bibles set up, the first, the top's the same as you can see. There's the Torah, um, which are the first five books of Moses. That's the same. But this is where it starts to change because we as Christians have broken up the Bible and we call after that the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, um, Ezra, we call these history books or the historical books. Um, and that's differently, much different than the way the Hebrews and the Jews um, looked at it. Um, so... The way they looked at it, um, and the way this is broke up, um, oh, this doesn't have it. Can you go to the next slide real quick? <clears throat> so the books of the Old Testament for the Jews, the way they break it up, they call it, it's called the Tanakh, um, and it's the way they break it up. So the T, you know, there's no vowels in Hebrew. So the T stands for the Torah, the first five books of Moses, um, and then... Then it moves in to this, um, I'm sorry, it moves over here, <laughs> okay? It moves over to the prophets. That's what the N is, that's a Hebrew word uh, for prophets. Now, what do you notice there? Now flip back to the next, well, you got paper, so yeah, but flip back to the slide. What's the difference you see about the hit, what we call, we break it up as the history books in the Christian Old Testament? But how do they view the books we call history? And that's on your second sheet. You do have a cheat sheet. I really wasn't trying to trick you, so I'll give you a hint. So what's that? Prophets. So we, we look at Joshua, Judges, Samuel, though, and we look at those and we say, well, they're, they're historical books. We read them like these are stories of history of the way it happened. Well, it's, that's true, um, but it's not the biggest truth of them. And I think this is where I think um, the Jewish Bible has a better understanding than what we have in the Christian faith. Because they viewed, when they read, and, when, and in Jesus' day, they viewed Joshua, Judges, Samuel, King Zion, that these are prophets. These are, these are no different than Isaiah, Jeremiah, or any of them. That these are prophecies. And not, not prophecies, in some, in some cases, they may prophesy about the Messiah. Because we know that in Samuel and stuff, there are some prophecies about David's line and Jesus. There is that in there. But it's that they saw them as prophets, meaning that when they read Joshua and Judges, they were taking it like when Isaiah says, we need to make some changes here. There are some things that you're doing. You've taken your eyes off God. You need to be redirected here and turn to him and repent. And there's a lot of this turning back at the prophets. That's what Joshua and those books, Samuel, were to do too. They were trying to teach the people of Israel 
of how they were to be. In some cases, so in the sense, you look at David, a man after our own heart, the way David's heart was continually after seeking God is a way that the people of Israel was to be. In, think about it. David wasn't perfect, right? He goes, has an affair with Bathsheba, turns, writes one of our famous songs about created me a clean heart, oh God, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He messes up, and he does what Israel's supposed to do when they mess up, is to turn back to God. So they see these, just like the prophets, is it's a redirecting of things. It's, it's not just straight, they were not just historical books. Are they based on historical figures? Yes. Historical events that did take place? Yes. But they weren't written really to tell history. They had a message for the people. And that's the difference. And I think that's the way we approach them. Because when we just look at them like, oh, here's some of the theory. This is the stuff that happened. No, it wasn't ever there. They saw these, and they still view them, that these are things that teach us how to look towards God. And that's the way they looked at Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And they do, because if you, and I'll just give one example, the book of Judges. The book of Judges shows this continuation of they go and they worship other gods, and then somebody saves them because the other nation throws them over. And they have all these judges, and there's this thing. And by the end of the book, you've got to read it as a whole to really understand what it's saying. Is It's really showing this is how bad things got. Is By the end of the book of Judges, you don't even hear about judges anymore. You have tribes turning against each other. As let alone they turned from God, now they've turned against each other. And now they're not united anymore as well. And, so, and that, that was a lesson. The whole book as itself is a whole prophetic book in the sense of crying out to Israel of what went wrong and not to repeat history. So, um, so I think that's an important step of how, why, when we get to that and look at the story, it's very important because it fits with what we've already looked at with Adam and Eve who turned their faces from God and turned from him and kind of went their own way. And we see this story repeat itself in these. And the prophets go and same mistakes are happening again. Um, so we see it. Um, and then you kind of see where some books that we would say are history books, like Chronicles is very close to what happens in Kings and Samuel, but that is a little more the, what they call the writings, um, where Psalms is, how the Jews broke it up, is they did see that as a little more, this is straight history. It's filling in some of the gaps of the history of what Samuel and Kings did not talk about because there's some difference. There's some similarities, but there's also some differences um, in those books. Um, the other thing you can probably see, you notice something else is that we have 39 books. Did you notice they have less? But is it less? Yeah. It's really, the same, it's not really different books, but they basically look at 24 where we look at 39 because and I think this is important because you can't read a lot of times we'll like oh that study first Samuel well first Samuel was never a book on its own it was one book first and second Samuel was it's one it was on one scroll there wasn't two scrolls there wasn't it was it was one thing and so we've kind of broken it up for convenience so, and like I said, this isn't like a right or wrong as much as though, but we need to see in the context, um, and I, I especially think this is important when we look at Jesus, because it's the context of how Jesus and the, peop and the Jews he came to of 
how they viewed things and even how Jesus talks about it. Um, so, um, so you could see in like Ezra and Nehemiah, that was one book too. They weren't separate. They were kind of there. So that's some of the difference. So I just, the, the point I really want to take this was, is these books right here, that they are not seen as like history, like we kind of break them up because it's lost if we lose, like these are really telling a story to us with real application of how we need to kind of get things right um, and where things went wrong. Um, those books kind of answer that, and that's exactly what the prophets did, like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and then naturally <clears throat> they, they put all the 12, if you go to that next slide now, um, what we call the minor prophets that are separate is basically kind of one book, but they're all the same. They're all in there. It's just the way they approached them and the way they viewed them. Any questions about that? And this is real academic right now, but there's, there is kind of method to my madness on it of why I think it's important. Okay. There was a question last year, like, why was the Bible broken up the way we did? Um, I know that in the sense of way we break ours up, um, I think the reason a lot of it was convenient, um, I kind of think we should have broke it up like it was originally intended when it was given of how they were viewed uh, to keep them, those books in the context. Um, so, but it's, it's good, especially when we, get, when we get to these books here, Joshua, Judges, and you start reading them, uh, just go in mind that you're reading, it's no different than reading Jeremiah or Isaiah or those, or those prophets as well. Okay. All right, next slide. All right. Now, this is what we just talked about right here of how the Hebrews and the Jews uh, broke up their Bible, which is just the Old Testament. It's just our Old Testament. Um, and how they broke it up. But here's what happened. As time went on, starting approximately my dad, my dad can, you can correct me if my history's wrong, but it's approximately about 200 years before Christ came, okay? Approximately about 200 years. They started, the Jews, now you gotta realize, they're, they're in Babylonian exile. They're wondering why, you know, they're in exile, that they think God might be against them. They think, well, we must have really messed up bad, and we got to figure out what we did wrong. And what happened, and I'm really simplifying something that, that happened over a couple hundred years, but what really happened is they were trying to figure out, we must, have, we are not doing things right in the sight of God. So obviously, we are not understanding the law com, uh, correctly, and we need to probably do more than what we're doing with the law of Moses. And so what they started to do is collect this oral tradition that wind up starting being written down 200 years before Christ came, and they kept adding to it clear up to when Jesus came, and there came this oral tradition, and then it got written in what was called a Talmud, which was these are the laws to add on to the laws of Moses. So they added more laws, not anything that was that it, nobody was sent on Mount Sinai or anything, and God said, write this down and do this. This is what they thought. They were trying to figure out what they did wrong, and they thought, we can get right with God, and maybe we'll get out of Babylonian exile if we start doing this stuff, because obviously we didn't follow the law very well, and now we're in exile, and God has turned against us. So we need to clean up our act. And so they started to add, I mean, it's like hundreds 
hundreds of laws beyond that um, that they added uh, to the Old Testament and to the Torah and to the law of Moses. Now, why am I bringing this all up? Anybody want to guess? Now, we're not going to study the Talbot, but the reason I am bringing it up is that we got to understand when we get to Jesus, you cannot fully uh, interpret and understand the Gospels, actually the entire New Testament, but especially the Gospels of Jesus, if you don't understand what I just went over. Because this is what Jesus fought against his entire ministry. The scribes and the Pharisees. Think, think of how many times you read. Then the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why was, you know, why was this done on the Sabbath? Why was this? And think about those Sabbath laws. Now, here's the thing. You can't just read the Old Testament when they're talking about the Sabbath laws. Okay? There wasn't a lot of Sabbath laws. There was some that Moses gave, but very few. But they had hundreds more beyond what the first five books of Moses said. And they added on to it. And Jesus kind of had to straighten out because it was their tradition. That was their tradition. It wasn't anything God said. And that's why he corrected them. And they would say, well, you know, it says in the law of Moses this and that. And sometimes when they said the law of Moses, it actually wasn't the law of Moses. It was an added teaching to Moses that they added to it in some cases. Not all cases. Some cases it was just straight up they misunderstood the law of Moses, period. But there's also that. So keep that in mind when you're re- that that's what they were going against. And it's what even Jesus' apostles went against. After his death and resurrection, he descended and they took the church forward. They were always brought into the synagogue, flogged, beaten, everything else, because they went against, in some case, the tradition. Not just the law of Moses, but the tradition that was added on top of it. Okay? Any questions about that? Yeah. Yeah, because, like, I'm glad you, like, I'm glad you, like, I'm glad you went, like, into the Pharisees. Because my understanding was, especially the Talmud, um, originally I thought only the rabbis had access to that, is my understanding correct? Because, because, like, in rabbinical school, they had to memorize the Tanakh, but the Talmud was only for the rabbis, as far as I understood, at least. Is that not, or is that not correct? Yes, it is correct. And, hence the problem. Yeah. Now, I'm not, I, I'm trying not to be, be cynical here, but does that remind you of anything in modern day? Huh? That yeah yeah that you're kind of on my my thinking here. I it kind of it's what I believe. Okay, this Jay, but I I think it's what. That the Catholic Church wound up going to the New Testament after they, because remember, the Bible was put together approximately about three, four hundred years after Jesus' death. We we have the Bible as we know it, but they put it together and they they because they had access to all the all the scrolls and all the things that it was on. So there's no doubt there. But then they wind up adding some things on top of it and traditions and stuff and a lot of times. They did it. Now, just so you know, I'm not, I'm not Catholic bastion here. I think every church, including ours, we're always in this danger. We're always in this danger of doing the same thing. And that's why I think 
it's very important that we understand the story, we study scripture because they are a basis. Otherwise, anybody can say whatever they want. And I think it's part of the problem that we have why there's separation in a lot of cases. Um, and so you start doing this, and all of a sudden, um, what Jesus' point was, you're not children of Abraham. You're not, and if you, he said to those religious leaders, you know what, if you knew the law of Moses, you would know who I am. But they were more worried about arguing about some of their traditions and some of the laws and all that, instead of seeing that the God who gave the laws of Moses was before them, speaking to them in the flesh. And so it's very important that we're always at jeopardy, which is why I think studying the scriptures is very important because we're always in danger of adding things that aren't there or adding things because we interpret them and think this is what this means. And I think that's why what we do here is so important. And listen, I'm not the authority in all this. That's why like the discussion, like I said, I learned much as we are going on from questions you asked. It sent me uh, to search more. It's, uh, it's all that stuff like it's trying to probing uh, difficult questions. That's a good thing because if we're not sure, it's all right not to have the answer. Maybe we just shouldn't move. <laughs> Sometimes it's good just to stay um, and not move forward until we know, until the Lord does move us um, on. It's, it, it's, it's all right with those things. So, um, <laughs> oh, man, do I want to say that? Probably. Probably, <laughs> but I mean, I do, but I don't, want to, I don't want to open a can of words. But many of you were here when we were talking about the talking snake who the talking snake was. Uh, so my, the thing that came out tonight, without getting into it, a lot of that, there's a lot of tradition that came with that that's just not in the scriptures. Whether you believe there's an overarching being who rules demons and an underworld, whether you believe it or not, there's still stuff added there that is beyond what the biblical text would say about it. A lot more. So, um, because some people just added to it, added to certain verses of scripture, and then made a whole story. So, I think my dad asked, like, did you ever read Dante or something? That's where it is. He was, a, he was a Catholic believer who read one scripture and then made a whole story out of it, and we think that story's in the Bible, and it's not. So, Same um, with Milton and Paradise Lost. Yes, talking about the different hells. Why the, the Catholics talk about purgatory. We don't really hear about purgatory uh, in the scripture. So there's all these beliefs that, that kind of get added on to it. So, um, and so that's why I think a lot of this important is to make sure we're not added, which is always scares me too, like to even teach and preach somewhat, I'll be honest with you. Like, like I read it the other day too, you know, when you read, like if anybody adds to this, you know, in Revelation, it says anybody adds to this prophecy or um, I'm thinking like, man, if I taught something wrong about this, it's not good. Uh, so, <laughs> But that's the, that's the beauty of, of studying the, the scriptures together and why I think this is important because Jesus had to fight this battle. And here's the funny part. He's arguing with the people who were supposed to be experts in this, the scribes, the Pharisees, um, the, the leaders of his day um, who couldn't see him because they wanted to hold on to their own interpretation and, and the scriptures, and they just couldn't see him because of it. So much so that they wanted to kill him. And so, um, and here's the other thing. Did you ever notice 
how like I mean don't you didn't don't you read the script? Let's be honest. I know I did. Me and my roommates in in college, like we would you know study one of the gospels and we'd have our little Bible study in our dorm room, and you know we'd be there like. And we'd be reading stories about the disciples, and we're like, man, these disciples are so stupid. <laughs> like, we're like, they're so dumb. They're so clueless. And so, is that just me, or are you guys more, maybe, maybe you're, your guys are probably more gracious than me. So, um, so, so, I remember saying that, and then you re, re, when I started studying, once again, it's not one of those stupid statements, which I had back, and I'm thinking, well, I'd probably be that dumb, too, considering most of them were just fishermen and stuff. They weren't experts in, in the law and stuff. And they have this mess. Well, first they have this mess that's misinterpreted. They already misinterpreted the law of Moses. I mean, you know, they thought a calf saved them instead of God. At the time. I mean, they just did, they did some stuff, and it was already messed up. And then they want to add more to it and try to fix the problem they created in the first place by worshiping idols that's the reason they were in Babylonian exile because they worshiped another god who wasn't a god at all and then they create all this and they're raised in this thinking this is truth the disciples and it's no wonder that they didn't even understand and see Jesus for who he was a lot of time it wasn't until much later that some of them got I mean Thomas didn't believe until he could actually touch Jesus and touch I mean they struggled all along to believe but it's because of this mess this mess was the biggest mess because as soon as we start trying to add our own, our own tradition to it and think we need to do this. I mean, I think that was part of the problem of Job, too, in the book. Job was so paranoid he wanted to be right for a God. He made sacrifices for his kids even when they didn't sin because he was so nervous that he, they might. It was like walking on eggshells constantly. And then it wasn't to the end that he came to know the true God and know God intimately that it's not about this is that this is the God of the universe who created him. And he knows all these things about Job and still cares for Job. Um, and so that's why I wanted to bring this up because when we get, when you get to the new Testament, that's why we have all these teachings of Jesus and they're just kind of, I don't get it. They just don't get it because a lot of times it was more tradition uh, than what it was. And the people, but do you notice how hungry the people were Jesus talked to, though? They were hungry. And when the, Jesus, the reason they were so tight, because Jesus talked differently. Because Jesus didn't talk about what you should and shouldn't do. He was always talking about the spirit and the heart of God in the laws and what they were doing. And they're like, nobody's ever talked like this before. And he was a rabbi. That's what they called him, rabbi. Even, even there. And so... Much different. He came, um, and who Jesus is, think about it. Part of the reading, when you read the Gospels, what you're reading is Jesus was the true Israelite of what the people of Israel was always to be. He came to fulfill the law that they were seeking, and they, didn't, they missed it all along that it was all about the heart and the relationship with God, and he had to remind them that's what all that, those laws and everything were about. They were never about what you're doing and don't do. It was about pointing things to him, himself, to God. So they didn't take their eyes off of him um, and go. Because as soon as they saw another nation and they see them prosper, they thought, well, their God must be the true God then, not our God. And he was trying to set them up so that other nations would look at them and they could be a light and say, that's the God we need to serve because they do things differently. So, do you want to add anything to that? 
I know we've talked about a lot. Do you want to? I know we've. Add, add, I'm, I'm not so sure add's the right word, but just a quick comment, particularly on the oral tradition. When you really look at the Gospels, both synoptic Gospels specifically, but also in uh, the Gospel of John, most of the arguments Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 90% of those discussions revolved around this oral tradition. And so another way to break those two things down, I think, is when you look at what we have up there, we, we're calling it the written tradition, but it's not. That is the Torah, the Novium, and the Ketuvim. Those scriptures were given by God. Over on the other side, the oral tradition, the Talmud, which, you're right, only the rabbis controlled the teaching of this. That was all man-made. It was not given by God. And so most of the arguments Jesus ended up having with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both of those sects, because the Essenes didn't really participate in those arguments, really 90% of them, if you go through the gospel, I, I, I'm going to give you a couple quick examples so you can get more of the point I'm trying to make about this. Do you remember the discussion one time when uh, they came to Jesus and they gave him this story about this woman that was married to this one guy and then he died and in the Jewish tradition then she was taken care of by the brother of that guy and then he died and so forth and they wanted to raise the question about this happened seven times they said and so they, they wanted to know, well then, whose wife is she going to be in the day of resurrection? That whole discussion had to do with their oral tradition from the Talmud. Had nothing to do with, with the law of Moses at all. It had to do with their oral tradition. And so when Jesus would face those kind of arguments, usually that's when he got into usually telling one of his parables about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. And, you know, for a long, long time, too long, really, I used to think when I read some of those, when he says kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven, I used to think, well, that those two are interchangeable. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is the same thing. But the more I've looked into it, I started to realize when I broke it down and I started looking at some of this oral tradition and what prompted those parables, I started to realize he very specifically chose the kingdom of God versus saying the kingdom of heaven depending on what it was that he was being asked. And here's what I'm hoping I can help you understand about that. Whenever Jesus said the kingdom of God is like, and he'd tell a story, that was always in reference, in what I've discovered in looking at this, was always in reference to the authority of the kingdom. 
when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he'd tell a story. If you really look at those stories, you're going to find that those stories were about principles of the kingdom of God. Not the authority of the kingdom, but principles of the kingdom of God. And, and the more I've read them, and then looking at this oral tradition and what the questions were that he got asked that prompted those stories, when you break it down, it brings it back to, again, as Jay's been talking about, the original story of God's relationship with his creation as father. And so when you look at those connections, what we're talking about here and what Jay's talking about here is really important that we do understand this difference because everything in what we call the New Testament, which I'm going to put this in Barry quotes, you can either accept it or throw it out the window. I really think those two divisions within what we call the Bible is a horrible uh, definition. I, I think, well, this is the Old Testament and this is the New Testament, like it's something different. It really isn't. So I, I really don't like the word New Testament. I, I'm forced to use it simply because that's what's been used for so long. But, but basically, what we call the New Testament is simply a conversation about what we call the Old Testament. That's what it's about. I mean, the only Bible that they had to discuss, the only scriptures that Jesus was discussing with anybody, or Paul was later, or Peter was later in his letters, was what we call the Old Testament. Because they were actually in the process of writing what we call the New Testament. So the only scriptures were what we call the Old Testament. So understanding this breakdown, I think, is important to really understand Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Because the teaching of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is really a teaching about what we spent a year on last year, the first three chapters of Genesis. The story. The relationship. God's love for what he created, what he made, his children, and so forth. Which is why when Jesus came, as Jay just mentioned a few moments ago, the common people that didn't even understand the law, they were called sinners by the rabbis of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they didn't understand the law. The reason those people were attracted to Jesus is because he was talking about what the real story was about. How much your father loves you and how much he cares. And that is the story. It's not what they have created out of the oral tradition or any of that sort of thing. And by the way, in the breakdown of that, two other words up there that Jay didn't really mention, I want to mention because of this, this premise that I'm talking about. The Talmud was divided between what is called the Mishnah and the Jamara. The Jamara was a commentary on the Mishnah. Now keep in mind, this, as Jay already told you, this is something they just dreamed up. This wasn't given to them by God. So they create the Mishnah and then on top of it create the Jamara so they can 
use that as a commentary so that you understand what they really meant by the Mishnah. And so they totally controlled all of that. Uh, and as Chris pointed out, rightly, the Talmud was only held by the rabbis. The common people weren't allowed to even read it. They had to just get, keep in mind, this was an oral tradition. They had to get the understanding of the Mishnah and the Jamara from the rabbis. They couldn't read it because, first of all, there was nothing to read. It was an oral tradition. It was a way to withhold God and his love from the people. Jesus came and upset that apple cart, which is why they were so adamant about crucifying him. He was messing up their little system because he simply came to tell again the story of the beginning. I created you, I fathered you, I am your father, I am your God, and I love you. Simple message. No wonder uh, the common people received it so gladly. And no wonder when you look at the Beatitudes, boy, the Beatitudes, in my view, tell the whole story. He's talking to a bunch of people that the rabbis of the oral tradition of the Talmud, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, called all those people that were gathered on that mountain that day sinners. Why? Because they didn't know the law. That was their definition of a sinner. Somebody who did not know the law. And these people were the disenfranchised, the outcasts. And no wonder so many of prostitutes and the common people follow Jesus. And he's got them on a hillside, and they, they have no self-worth because they've been told all their life that they're nothing. And what does he do? He opens up his conversation with them, saying, blessed are you, or happy are you, for these reasons, and pours out the love of the Father on them. No wonder they were captivated by his words, why they listened to him. Because he was saying what they needed to hear. Instead of hearing, you're nobody, he was saying, you're somebody. And blessed are you because of this. Because yours is the kingdom of God. You are what this is all about. You are important. You are loved by my Father who cares for you and will forever care for you. And has never, ever forgotten you. Total opposite message that they were getting from the Talmud held by the rabbis and from the Mishnah and the Gemara, which was all from man, none of it from God. And so if you want to put it in a simple way, Jesus, God himself, came. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He came and tabernacled to straighten out what the people that were supposed to represent him messed up completely. 
And so when you read, again, the Gospels, I would just challenge you to look at those parables and look at the difference in the conversation when he says the kingdom of God is like. And every time he uses that phrase, he's talking about the authority of the king, the king of the domain. But when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's talking about the principles of the kingdom and principles that you can live by and feel and sense the love of God. I would just challenge you the next time, for whatever reason, you have to be reading through one of the Gospels and you hit one of those, read it again and read that story carefully and get the feel for where he's going between kingdom of God Right before Diane has to take everything. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I have a video. Listen, I this will show you that this is even happening today, and I want to show the connection of the importance of really realizing that when Jesus says, "I'm the fulfillment of the law of Moses and the prophets and all that stuff," uh, that they all speak about me. It's weird that this this is we're we're talking about Jesus's day. It's still withheld from the Jews today and many of them today. And I've been watching, I, I happen to come across this and there's, there's lots of them I've watched. I just picked my favorite, okay, of this, but you go on YouTube, I forget the organization. I, oh, I think it's One for Israel. And it's these testimonies of these people who were raised Jewish and how they find Jesus and realize he is the Messiah that they were talked about all the time. And I think this is just in a great example of what we're talking about how they just didn't know, but the light that they see uh, when they encounter Jesus is just there. So we'll watch us now say a couple things. It's very. I just saw that the other week, and I've. I think I've watched it twice before we came here. Whether I wanted to use it or not, I still get emotional watching it. I mean. It, it just, I, I, it's like the third time I've, I've like got all teary-eyed about it. Um, and it's because I guess I, uh, you know, this started back, I think, for this is to share a little personal with me of what God's, uh, I guess, uh, speaking to me is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this story brief, but, you know, my dad was called to preach when he was 15. And he was prophesied over that he was going to go speak against the Pharisees and the scribes of the day he, he was in. Um, and I've always felt that call has come to me in a much different way throughout Jill and I's relationship, but helping people. Um, it was at-risk kids, um, kids from poor families when we start out. But it was always this of realizing that... Um, I've always just, I, it's turned to the point where I get sad now. I used to get angry at how religion has destroyed people and kept people from seeing Jesus. Um, now I just get sad about it because um, I realize there's no reason to be angry about it because God loves them too. But it does anger me that tradition, religion, that's why I'm saying everything I'm talking about, we got to make sure we don't do that, that we're not putting stuff on people that has nothing to do with Jesus. And it has to do with the way we may want people to be. I mean, I struggle with that. Jill and I struggle with that with our parenting. We think our kids should be a certain way, but our job is to make sure they're forming the way God wants them 
to be formed. And she has to remind me sometimes, you, we got to trust God with this and trust that it will be all right. So, you know, I'm stubborn and she has, she shows me the heart of the Father <laughs> um, a lot. But when I see this and you see these people that have been just so blind, but yet they have this encounter with Jesus and kind of what my dad was saying and looking at the scriptures is that's why people loved Jesus. The people that were so worn out from religion and rules and realizing, and he took them right back to where we were a year ago in, in the first three chapters of Genesis. And we will continue as we go forward to remind that that was God's thing. He wanted a relationship. You notice there was no rules. The rules was he wanted to be in relationship with them in a face-to-face thing, and he was going to give them everything they needed and cared for Adam and Eve. Um, and it's when other things get in the way. Sometimes it's ourselves. Sometimes it's other people. But it's amazing, like, when I hear that, it's like, I've never been more Jewish, Um, you know? And it's it's amazing when the things we talked about, hopefully you see, like, it still happened in modern days, and that's why people were so attracted to Jesus when they encountered him, just like this guy today, I guess 1989, but, uh, but, and so my hope for, you know, when we're studying this, it's, I, I'm, I do my best that if I bring in academics, it's to make a point of how stuff has got turned into tradition or rules. And to me, especially the Old Testament, is that people do not see the heart of God in it that was always there. Because if you read it properly and not with a bunch of baggage out, you see this father who just wants his kids to pay attention to him. So he can say, I love you, like that guy experienced. Right where supposedly the Mount of Transfiguration was with Jesus. is That's what the Old Testament is. Everything God does is that he wants them to see him, to realize, I'm caring about you. I'm doing these things because I love you. And the heart is in there, and I'm hoping that we all see it and that the Holy Spirit shows us so we don't do with the Old Testament as we read it what the Jews wind up doing it and what... The church decided to do with it, and um, we, we will see Jesus all through it. But I want to point out something that really shows, because um, the reason this clip, why I showed this one probably, is due to one thing I wanted to talk about here, because it's such a popular story and refers to it, which is the transfiguration. So that's what I want to end with um, here tonight. If you guys want to turn with me in your Bibles, I'm going to read Mark's version of the transfiguration. It's dark in here. Um, It's Mark chapter 9. It's going to be starting at verse 2. We all know this story so well. And the thing is, we could, oh wow, we could talk about it so much. There's so much in it. But I want to talk about one thing that I think is missed in this story that I've never heard anybody talk about. Doesn't mean they didn't, it just means I didn't hear it. <laughs> so maybe they did. Um, so six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them, appeared to them, Keyword appeared to them. Elijah 
with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. The thing I want to point out there I think is missed. It's all on Only Jesus. All they saw was Jesus. I think this is missed in this story because all the other interpretations about it are exactly right. There's, there's Moses that these disciples see who represents the law that we talked about, the books of Moses. We have Elijah who is known as the greatest of all the prophets, so he represented all of them that he was there. We even have the father who spoke the world into existence, speaking and saying, this is my beloved son. They're experiencing all of this. And kind of back to what I'm saying, I'm going to kind of make fun of him, but we would have did the same. And based on the traditions and stuff we talked about, Peter says, hey, why don't we build three tabernacles, three tents, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And at that point, Jesus at this point, like they totally missed the point. They totally missed the point. And the point that's missed here, that's in all these versions in something is, it says, then all they saw was Jesus. And I think what's missed there, I think that's why that's put there. I mean, it's weird that, why is that little phrase in there, I think it's the heart of this because what it was trying to say, it was already trying to get these disciples to see is, don't you know that the God who gave the law to Moses and gave the prophetic word to the prophets and the one who smoke, spoke from the mountain back there, it's me. It's only Jesus there. He's all of them. He's Yahweh standing before them transfigured before them and he wants them to see him this is the the messiah but here's the thing that's missed let alone the messiah the thing i want to say about this video take this a step further there was already indication now you got to understand mark was the first gospel written okay then matthew and luke came close together okay and already there's hints where there was signs where where jesus was already saying he's more than the Messiah, okay? Um, because here's the thing. John, who was the last apostle in tradition, as far as we know, the last original apostle of Jesus to die, writes his gospel. They, they think it could be as late as 90 or 100 AD. Long time after Jesus. And here's the thing. This is where... Tradition says that John's churches and the people that he discipled continually wanted him to write a gospel because he was either like, you're one of the last living disciples. You, you, need, you need to write an account of Jesus and what he did. And he probably, it sounds he probably refused it for years. And it wasn't until his old age 
that he did. And my speculation is I think John, being around for a long time, realized they were always speaking to the Jews as who they spoke to and ministered to first. And then it spread out to the Gentiles. But I think he realized that it wasn't just about seeing Jesus the Messiah. He wrote his gospel because all the gospels have, and this is just a, a foreshadowing, if you read all the gospels clearly, all of them have a particular image of Jesus. And they're all important to understand who he is. Matthew, it's that he was the Messiah. This was the, 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 the son of David who was to come. He was to be the Jewish Messiah. You have Luke which his biggest image of Jesus from the way he tells the parables and everything is that Jesus is king. This was the king that was how kings were to operate on the earth. Then you have Mark, who saw Jesus as the suffering servant because he's all about service and suffering, and he was the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And then you have John, who takes it beyond them all to say he just wasn't the Messiah, he just wasn't the son of David, he was Yahweh in the flesh. He came and pitched his tent the word that brought everything into existence became flesh. Became flesh. And so, um, and, and it's funny because we watch, we watch this video and he encounters this God that way. And the other thing I thought of, he said it, it made me think of, of John when he said, did you notice he said, when he said when this transfigured being, God came down to him, he said, went right up against his chest. John, it's the only account we have, John's gospel points out, and he does a purpose, that he, at the Last Supper, laid his head against Jesus' chest. And I think because John, differently than the rest of them in that moment, knew he was hearing the literal heartbeat of Yahweh, of God, in the flesh, and realized this just isn't the Jewish Messiah. This just isn't the Messiah. The Messiah is actually the incarnate God walking in flesh. That's the miracle. That's, that's why Christmas is, like we always, the shepherds and everything, but to me it's John's gospel. The, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Um, and that's the amazing part because then we have encounters like this um, beyond the law and all these things. So um, kind of what I hope to see is like everything that was happening at that transfiguration as we read the Old Testament Everything came to being in Jesus that Jesus was saying, I'm all of that. All of that was me all the whole time, and you just missed it. And even the disciples missed it at the time. They got it later, but they missed it at the transfiguration themselves. Is that there was no three tents to pitch. There was one, and that was Yahweh pitched his tent with us. That was the important one. It was only Jesus left. And so... And then it finally got written down. And I think it's something that can very easily be missed in that. So that brings us to day 30. So, um, so I hope that's an introduction. It's stuff that we'll be coming back to. And it's kind of like looking way forward. But as we go forward reading, we need to keep this overarching story in there and realize that there's things that are going to be said because what we're reading in the Old Testament was what Jesus was quoting from. That was the Bible of Jesus of the day. And it's what Paul and them were talking about. Even in Timothy, when Paul's talking about Scripture being God-breathed, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. And, and he's trying to show and bring these things to life, that these are all about, these are all about Jesus. He's all over them. And so 
Um, that's what we'll be looking at. So I do have a homework assignment for you. And so what I need you to do, just because I want you to see, and don't get bogged down. I know it's hard. This was the hardest thing for me when my professors told me to do this because you just kind of want to read it, is that don't read the first 11. I want you to read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but don't read them saying, Lord, I want you to speak to me. I need you to read it academically. <laughs> I know that's hard. It is hard. So, but what I mean by that, so don't read it slow. Just read it, get a feel of what's going on, how the story flows, because these are connected. Because if you break up the book of Genesis as a whole, if you read it as a whole, it breaks up. There's the first 11 chapters, which are generally kind of this big scope of the entire world that God created and what was going on. And then guess what happens from chapter 12 to 50? It's only about one family. That's it. One family. God starts all over, and he's going to start with one family to bring back his whole family. So, but just read those first 11, and like I said, because um, that's uh, what we're going to structure into. So reread those. Hey, by the way, you can read the first three real slow if you want to remember some of the stuff we talked about. But once you get the four, start just, just kind of read it. Just get a feel for it of what you're seeing and how it's developing and what's going on. All right? One through 12. 11. 11. You're not allowed to read about Abraham. Abraham, actually. First. Then you can read about Abraham later. <laughs> Yeah, just the first 11. All right. Thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight. Everybody get home safe, because obviously there was an accident, like I said, on 70, so we don't need any accidents on 81.